Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. It is a pleasure to have you join us today as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to be in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. Uh, it is a continuing discussion, so if you miss the first chapter, I encourage you to go back and catch the first chapter because the second chapter is the second half of the first idea that the author of Hebrews is presenting. Now, I know that may sound a little confusing, but once you dive in with us, you'll understand where we're at. But it is great to have you join us as we explore God's Word together and as we seek to grasp hold of Scripture. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this life that you have given us, the opportunity to draw breath and to praise your name and to worship you. Now, Lord, as we read this text, help us not just to, to do it in an academic sense, but Lord, help us to hear your voice speaking to our hearts, that we may be drawn closer to you, that we may be conformed more to the image of Christ and show your glory in this world. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Scripture, the gift of you revealing yourself to us, your creation, that we may know you and be in relationship with you. Lord, help us to understand what we read today. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're back with the second chapter. Now, I'm not going to rehash authorship or time of writing or or even audience necessarily, uh, except to remind you, as the name might suggest, Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews has definite uh, ties to a Hebraic people with a Jewish background, and it is out of that history and out of that Old Testament structure that you see the explanation of Christ as high priest in the New Testament and what all of that means. So you can't really get into what the book of Hebrews is talking about unless you're looking back to the Old Testament to some extent. And that's why we see such extensive quotes from the Old Testament. Now, just a note on quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. They are from a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It was a translation into Greek of the Old Testament Hebraic writings that was generated out of Alexandria, Egypt, some 200 years before Christ, roughly. Uh, well done translation, and it's the one that's used most of the time in the New Testament when quotes are made from the Old Testament. Sometimes you may be reading along and see a quote in the New Testament and go, oh, that says it's from Psalm chapter 8. And you flip over there and you read it and it doesn't quite read the same. Well, that's because our English translations render the Old Testament into English out of the Hebraic Old Testament. In fact, most of them use... Uh, what is it? Hebraic uh, Stuttgartensia, something like that. It's it's a Hebrew copy of the Old Testament that dates back to about 1000 AD. Um, when we get to the New Testament, well, the 
the Hebrew text that Jesus quoted out of and that the author of Hebrews quotes out of and that Paul tended to quote out is the Septuagint. That was the common version that worked across language barriers at the time because Greek was the um, the language of commerce. If, if you were a fisherman, you knew Greek. Uh, you may not know how to read and write Greek, but you knew how to speak Greek. Um, that was just how you did business in the Greco-Roman world. So it didn't matter what your native tongue was. You also learned the, the Koine or the, uh, the economic language of the day. And so that's kind of some background there. If you get to wondering, because we are dealing with a lot of Old Testament quotes in the book of Hebrews, if you get to looking at them and go, well, it's not quite the same. That's why the meaning is the same. Just in the new Testament, we're looking at a translation from a Greek old Testament into English, as opposed to our old Testament copy in English, which is a Hebrew old Testament translated into English. Now that may be more than you ever wanted to know about Greek and Hebrew and translating and, and all that, but just suffice it to say, that's what's going on when the quotes are a little bit different in the new Testament, when they're quoting, especially from old Testament prophets, I say, especially because that's what we see quoted a whole lot in the new Testament. So wanted to give you that heads up as we dive in to the second chapter. So there I've done it. I've given you that heads up. Let's look at the text. Okay, in the second chapter, there's a little bit of a shift. Now, the first chapter dealt very heavily with the authority of Christ, that Christ is above the angels, that uh, he is not subject to any other part of creation, but he is Lord over creation. Creation was through him. We talked about the Trinity, Christ as part of the Godhead. Um, now, we have a reminder, almost a warning reflecting back on the Old Testament and comparing it to the New Testament in the first few verses. And then the discussion shifts. And instead of talking about the divinity of Christ, the author of Hebrews starts to really dig into the importance of the humanity of Christ, the incarnation, and what that means. And he sets the stage. I'll just go ahead and tell you where this chapter is going. He sets the stage for the discussion that will take part take place through the rest of Hebrews, and that is that Christ takes his place validly as high priest. Here we go, what? What do you mean high priest? I don't get, we'll delve into that. We will, um, here, one of my favorite terms, we will unpack that idea later as we go through the book of Hebrews. But we see the groundwork being laid for it now in the second chapter. And really the first and second chapter are the first part or the first idea that the author of Hebrews is presenting um, to those listeners or readers as they struggle with this idea of, of clinging to faith in Christ or walking away from faith in Christ and maybe clinging to some of the Old Testament ideas or whatnot. So chapter two, says this, so we must listen carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. So there's a warning about drifting away. We must listen carefully to the truth we've heard, or we may drift away from it. You almost get echoes of James in there, don't you? 
uh, the man that looks in the mirror and then walks away forgetting what he has seen. Don't look at the word of God like that and then walk away forgetting what you encountered there. We must listen carefully to the truth we have heard or we will drift away from it. Verse two, for the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. Now he's talking Old Testament there. And through the angels, that refers back to what, I can't remember if it was chapter 30 or chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, uh, makes a reference to the angels being that avenue through which God delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Jewish tradition by the first century had really latched on to that idea that it was the angels that delivered God's law to Moses. So God delivered through angels has always stood firm. Okay, the law of God stands. If you wish to be morally right with God, then you have to obey the law. And I don't mean obey the law now. I mean, have always obeyed the law. Violation of the law brings punishment. As he says here, law has always stood firm and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. But then we get to verse three. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Now, do you see the progression there? Old Testament, the law, any violation of the law was punished. Now, the caution don't drift away. Why? Not from the law, but from the message of salvation presented through Christ. Because if the law was so strict that any violation dealt, resulted in public, uh, let me try that again in English, that any violation of the law resulted in punishment, then looking New Testament, if that law was delivered by angels and Christ is greater than the angels in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus himself presented this great salvation, announced this great salvation. But then not only that, it was delivered to us when we heard him speak, and God confirmed it by giving signs, wonders, and various miracles, and even gifts of the Holy Spirit as he chose. So if the law was that important, how much more so? If that was delivered by angels and it was that important, then here we have this message of salvation delivered by Christ who is above the angels. How important is that? And don't you think it's important we not drift away from it? Yeah, that is a huge, huge warning to not drift away. And it's just built on this idea of Christ being higher than the angels. And the Jews, I mean, as I shared in the last podcast, the the Jews had developed this whole system of really being fascinated with angels and a hierarchy of angels and, and you know, figured out different archangels beyond what's mentioned in scripture and, and all of this stuff. They place so much importance on it. And here he's going, yeah, forget all that. Jesus is higher than that. And he has told us this. So don't you think we ought to listen? And of course, the answer is yes, we ought to.
Now, after that warning comes a discussion of the humanity of Jesus, of the incarnation. We've talked about how Jesus is is above the angels, how he is part of the Trinity. He is on par with God. He's part of God. He is God. Now, the discussion shifts. And he says in verse 5, And furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we're talking about. For in one place, the scriptures say, and that one place is Psalm 8, by the way, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Or a son of man that you should care for him? Now, son of man there refers to all humanity, okay? I know son of man is one of Jesus's favorite names for himself, and there's a reason for that. It's an identification with humanity. But this reference to the Son of Man, that you should care for him, uh, is, is a reference to humanity. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Or a Son of Man, that you should care for him? Yet you made them only a little lower than the angels, and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now that is in Christ. He's given authority over all things, and... We, as we are united with Christ, we as the church are given authority over all things. Well, he goes on, continuing in verse 8. He says, now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Let that sink in for a moment. This is Jesus who was above the angels. And yet identifying with us, his creation became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Well, verse 9, what do we see in Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels? Now, his authority was above the angels. His rightful position was above the angels, but he humbled himself. Uh, See Philippians, okay? Um, He humbled himself and became man. made a little lower than the angels. And because, as a man, he suffered death for us, because as God, death wasn't an issue. But as man, death is an issue. He suffered death for us. He is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. But after that death, he was exalted. And everything is under him. But it was by God's grace Jesus tasted death. Why? For everyone. Now he's going to go into this a little further about Jesus becoming flesh and about what that means. But right there is the gospel. That God 
became flesh and dwelt among us and died for us. And then rose again, living. By God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. His death means we're set free. His death means he died in our place so that we don't have to face death. I know, I know, physically we die, but there's a promise of resurrection. And we do not have to die spiritually. We do not have to be condemned to being separate from God, separate from that light that is life. But instead, we can have eternity in his presence. Why? Because through his grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. All right, in verse 10, the author of Hebrews picks up with this. He says, God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. Now, even that word leader there, a perfect leader, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of nuance to that word. It could mean all sorts of things. Captain, scout, leader, lord, you know, it's numerous things. But think, because we're dealing with Hebrews, because there is such a comparison to the law being given to Moses on Mount Sinai, think of Moses leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, leading them out of Egypt, that God-appointed leader that that charges forward, that sees the path and walks it, leading the people to what God has promised. That is the, the imagery being evoked here when it talks about Jesus through his suffering is a perfect leader fit to bring them into salvation, not into the promised land as in a geographic area, but into salvation, that true spiritual promised land, as so many of our older hymns talk about crossing over Jordan into that promised land. We're not talking about real estate, but we're talking about a state of grace in the presence of God. God, for whom and through whom everything was made. Now, that's interesting. Let's let's look at that first part of 10. God, for whom and through whom everything was made. And yet we know from other passages of Scripture, it is through Christ that everything was made. What does that tell us? Again, we're back to the Trinity. One God, three persons. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children to glory. It's by God's choice that he did it. It's consistent with his character, his love for us. What does Paul tell us? God demonstrates his love for us in this, 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm -hmm. It was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. Who's they? Us. He's talking about us there. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. What? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus brings us into that relationship that he has with the father through his death on the cross, atoning for our sin. When he brings us into salvation, he's bringing us into relationship with God. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, now you may go, wait, wait. Jesus said to God, yeah, Psalm chapter two. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Now I said Psalm chapter two, I'm sorry. Psalm chapter 22, which, by the way, is a heavily messianic uh, psalm. Uh, the whole thing talks about the crucifixion. In fact, it's a psalm that Jesus quoted while on the cross. And you may go, he didn't quote a psalm. Remember, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sorry, it's King James is how I learned it. Um. That is actually the first verse of Psalm chapter 22. And any student of the Psalms, any child who grew up attending synagogue school in the first century would have memorized the Psalms. They were the songbook and prayer book for the nation of Israel. So that quote would not have been heard without understanding the reference by any of the Jews present anyway. And it is from Psalm 22, that heavily messianic Psalm. He says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. What does that mean? Well, verse 11, right before it tells us. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. We are called brother and sister by Jesus? Yeah. That is the type of relationship that God is inviting us into. That is the invitation of Christ and his sacrificial work on the cross. That is the offer of salvation through God's grace that we can appropriate by faith by placing our trust in Jesus. We can become children of God. We can become siblings of Jesus, made holy by his work. What a tremendous promise. What a tremendous invitation we have. Why would we walk away from that? Well, he goes on in verse 13, and here he's going to quote from Isaiah, uh, specifically Isaiah chapter 8. He also said, I will put my trust in him. 
That is, I and the children God has given me. So I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children that God has given me. Whoa. Yeah. That is children of God, not children of Jesus. He's talking about us there still. Now he moves to verse 14. And in verse 14, he says, Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death, or it could be translated, who has the power of death. But it's broken. It's been defeated. That's what's going on here. And so the author of Hebrews is making it clear. Jesus didn't just give the law. The angels, as the Jews saw it, the angels handed the law down to Moses from God. But now looking at Jesus, Jesus, who is above the angels, lowered himself to become human. Why? Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood. The son also became flesh and blood. Because only for only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break that power of the devil who has the power of death. That power of death. People live in fear of death. I mean, it's a normal human thing to be fearful of death, especially when you don't know what is beyond. You can only see to the edge, and you can't see past it. But we do not need to live in fear of death, because we have hope, and we have the promise of life in Christ, and we have the evidence. Well, actually, we're about to get into some of the evidence, but uh, God has made himself known. He has, has attested to who Christ is through miracles and signs and wonders, through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his followers today and throughout Christian history. We have seen evidence that where we have placed our faith is solid. And it's incredible. It is incredible what God has done for his creation. That he stepped into creation in the flesh for the purpose of saving us. He became flesh so he could die to break the power of the devil, to set us free from the grip of death. Verse 15 says, only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Let me read that again. Think about it deeply. Think about your own feelings, what's going on in your own heart. Think about the people you know in this life. Have they been set free from the fear of dying? Verse 15 again. 
Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Remember, Jesus told us in John chapter 10, verse 10, says the devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I come that you might have life, and life more abundantly, or life to the fullest. We don't have a full life when we are slaves to the fear of dying. Christ has set us free. Now, if you're part of the study with us and you have not been set free, you have not accepted that grace, that offer of salvation, that offer of relationship with God, that invitation given through Christ to come into salvation, then I want to encourage you. Turn to him. Take hold of him. Cling to that message. Place your faith in Christ. I hope these passages speak to you today. Now, verse 16, as we round out the chapter, says this. We also know that the Son did not come to help the angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Now, who are the descendants of Abraham? Well, that's the Jews. Well, yes, Jesus also talked a good deal about the true descendants of Abraham are all those that trust and place their faith in God, Uh, not just the biological descendants of Abraham, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So we also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters. He had to truly become one of us. Remember a number of years ago, a musician, I believe her name was Joan Osborne, uh, sang a song, what if God was one of us? You know, what if he was just a stranger on the bus? What if God was one of us? Guess what? God was one of us. He became one of us. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. You see, there were some Old Testament requirements on being a high priest. Number one, you had to be a descendant of Abraham. Check that box. And one of the nice things about a high priest was, you know, as a descendant of Abraham and, you know, human, they understood what it was to struggle with sin. They had sympathy for those that struggled. They were able to be merciful to those who struggled. And they came before God and they made offerings, not just for their own behalf, but for the behalf of all of the community of faith. And now they're saying, therefore it was necessary for him, or the author of Hebrews is saying, and God through him, because this is God's inspired word. Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful 
and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. You see, if you go back and look at it, the Old Testament sacrificial system didn't take away the sins of the people. It was a placeholder. It was a system set up to remind the people that God would provide a sacrifice that was adequate to cover the sins of the people. But the sacrifices they made weren't adequate. They pointed towards what would be, which was the sacrifice of Christ. Then he could offer a sacrifice, not sacrifices, a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Verse 18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. If you have a mental image of Jesus as being this this angry son of God because he had to die for the sins of humanity, so God must be angry at us. He must resent that we're sinners because he had to suffer for us. You've got it all wrong. He created us knowing that we would need a Savior. From the beginning, He had the plan. He knew what it would cost Him to create humanity before we were ever formed. And because of His love for us, He still spoke the world into existence. He still took that dirt and formed it and breathe the breath of life into it, knowing what it would cost him. Why? Because he loved us. Because he loves us. And that love for us led Christ to be made flesh and blood, to dwell among us, to be our high priest and to offer a sacrifice, the only sacrifice adequate to atone for the sins of all the people throughout all time. And that is a sinless sacrifice of Christ himself. Breaking the power of death setting us free so we no longer live as slaves to the fear of dying. And we live in relationship with God. What an awesome gift. What an awesome God that would do that for his creation. I don't claim to understand all of it because I'm not God. But as I read his word, I love the message that it gives to us and the hope and the promise that is there of who we are in Christ. I hope that as we study these chapters together, you experience some of that joy and some of that hope and some of that gratitude 
that I sense as I read this. These texts are encouraging. They are God revealing his love for us and his invitation into fellowship and relationship with himself. It is the message of the gospel, the message of salvation given to us. Rejoice in it. Take joy from it. And live in that relationship. I thank you for joining us as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews and, and in a larger basis, through Scripture itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We thank you that you stepped into your creation, that we may have a high priest that could offer the sacrifice that our sins are paid for and we are now called the children of God made in right relationship with you not because of what we have done but because of what Christ has done Lord we thank you for that awesome gift help us to live in light of that reality and to not drift away from that truth. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.